James. Duncan. How are you, dude? I'm well today, thanks. How are you? I'm good. Welcome to Cloud Streets, where James and I discuss a topic. Um, this week, it's going to be Wait But Why and their most recent sort of series and the first chapter, which is the Battle of Fire and Light. Um, I think James and I have a mega crush on Tim Urban, who's the writer of Wait But Why. And the last time an article came out, I got a voice message from James going, Oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, wait but why, wait but why, oh my God, wait but why, oh my God, oh my God. It was the best. Um, and so, yeah. It's been about three years since he was like, well, two at least, since he last posted. So mm. um, I know Duncan had given up all hope, but I, I kind of knew that he, um, like he said at one point that he was locking himself away working on something pretty big. So just like yeah. when it came around, it was just like, I, like the, you know, the, the eight-year-old equivalent of Christmas, oh. to be perfectly honest. Seriously. Um, so I, I think the very first person that I ever was a Patreon for, um, so donated to, was Tim Urban. I think 20-year-old Duncan might have had what he, in hindsight, considers is the wrong attitude towards content, i.e. if you can get it for free, get it for free. <laughs> um, whereas now um, I attempt to pay for content. Sometimes there are some things which I can't get in Australia because just it sucks. And so if I, if I can pay for it, I will. But if I can't and I really want to get it, then I'm forced to go through routes which... I can't pay. Um, and so I was paying for, you know, or donating to Tim Urban because it is free. And then he didn't post for, I think, at least two years. And I remember emailing him being like, dude, I want to pay you, but like, I just, I just don't feel I can when you're not posting. And so he's like, yeah, fair enough. And then this thing comes out and I'm like, oh my God, oh my God, it's like straight back onto Patreon, <laughs> adding paying money, like trying to make up for lost time. Um, and I think James put this right. Like I used to be happy that there was a new Mario Kart on the new Nintendo you know, system. And that would make me really, really happy. But now I'm actually wildly more happy about this. Like, this is, in my opinion, much better than the new Mario Kart coming out. The, the new and we, can act, yeah. and we can qualify that um, completely because Mario Kart did just come out on the iPhone and we both thought we would be super excited about it. But I honestly think that sharing our thoughts on this new concept of the story of us, which is the blog series by Tim Urban, I think it's far more interesting. Totally. Spending time. <laughs> this is a really <laughs> good get into. Well, just as one analogy, um, James and I used to play, um, we don't live in the same city, but we used to play Mario Kart on Sunday nights and you can do it through the internet versus each other. And then we talk on the phone and, you know, battle each other in Mario Kart. Now, like, I wouldn't, you know, to talk about Wait But Why, which is kind of the same thing, we're catching up. Mario Kart would be, 1% as much enjoyment as talking about this. So, you know, Nintendo Mario Kart battling has been replaced with talking about an article. And this is like, uh, maybe we're maturing. <laughs> I'm not sure we're mature. Um, maybe one day. Yeah, or, or getting boring in other people's minds. Who knows? <laughs> um, all right, so this is sort of talking about the first one. And I think we actually might do a podcast on every chapter just because we think it's that good. I think it's conceivably this series, the single best thing I've ever read, if you take all of them. Now... There's not like, you know, it might still make up 1% of what I think is important, but nothing else comes to 1%. <laughs> so this is just a huge, you know, important thing. Um, I, I almost believe everyone should read it. So they're sort of talking about that everything has evolved and we're all single cell organisms at one point. And some of us, I don't know, some things are a tree and some things are a human. But the sort Deep. of... Huh? Deep. Deep. <laughs> <laughs> so basically, there's your reptilian brain. Um, which is kind of what, you know, similar to a reptile. And then there's your human brain. And that's kind of what this fire and light. So fire is kind of old school, you know, 
uh, sort of monkey brain or, or, or reptilian brain, and light is the actual human brain. And so to give you an example, um, all this wiring is done to us in this old brain. So if you walk near a cliff, you get vertigo. So you don't walk off the cliff. So it's, it's, you, know, you didn't choose to get vertigo, right? If, if you're hungry, you know, your body is like, I need to eat, I need to eat. If you smell some really good food, you salivate. You didn't choose this. So I think a lot of people think they choose everything. But you do choose some things. That's the light part that he's talking about. But there's also a huge amount of programming from our history as an evolution of a species done to us. Mm. So again, walk near a cliff, vertigo. The, with the humans that didn't get that walked off the cliff. You know? So this, this is <laughs> actually this. And more than that also, humans need to procreate, right? If they don't procreate, they don't exist. So the ones that wanted to procreate the most, they're around. The ones that wanted to procreate the least, they're not around. So when you see a member of the sex you're attracted to, your biological wiring, just like you get vertigo when you go near a cliff, goes off and says, I want to procreate, I want to procreate. But, so you get mm. horny effectively. This is not a choice yeah. that you've yeah. made. So and then you have a story yeah. Yeah, from, from Disney that yeah. says that, you know, you, you want to get married. So you think you've had an original thought. You haven't. Your <laughs> biology is like, me horny, must procreate. And you're like, oh yeah, I thought that. No, you didn't. This is what your biology is doing. It's you know, this is how the humans did. So the humans that weren't horny, they're not around anymore. They you know, they just didn't procreate. So the horniest humans won, right? They're the ones that are everywhere. And so that's why you see this, and your and your body's like overriding. It's it's ridiculous. Anyways, yeah. So, so, so this is what Duncan sounds like when he's overexcited. <laughs> Duncan is clearly not in control this is something else driving him here but um like going back to the initial um i guess starting point here mm -hmm. talking about right so when you walk along a cliff you get vertigo what's actually going on here um and so you kind of pointed out so what tim urban um like outlined for us to try like so what tim urban does really well is he gives really good um illustrations or personifications of certain um i guess ideas that are just so in their own right, complex or convoluted for us to be able to grasp. But when he personifies it, you kind of be like, oh, I can actually follow what he's saying now. So that's one of the, my favorite things about Tino. Mm. He would take an incredibly deep and complex topic and he would explain it to you as if anyone could understand it. And that to me is what makes it incredibly impactful. That so like he he doesn't shy away from very complex topics. Like he goes through the process of explaining it to great detail how the mind works in one of his previous uh, blogs. Like not just like oh you think and then you have an idea. It's like no, these are the actual physiological elements that make up the human brain. And so it's just an incredible story. So here, he starts off with the story of the of the gene, right? The very very simplest piece of uh, life organism that is responsible for driving all of the survival instincts within the animal kingdom. So the, um, the fire brain or the subconscious brain or the reptilian brain is basically this instinctive software that is driven by our genes desire to survive. Hmm. Yeah, I think just realizing this, I think I used to think that I made all my decisions. And that I'd learnt everything. But just as an example, a baby is born and it, it already knows how to feed. Like it knows how to feed from a breast immediately. Nobody trained it, didn't go to like breastfeeding school. It just knows exactly what to do. 
So there's all this biological programming in us from things like feeding. You put it in water, like, you know, immediately they know how to grasp onto the side and not to go under it to sort of try and swim. Um, I, I don't know if I'm willing to test that theory. but <laughs> um, <laughs> And so I didn't know there's all this biological programming. And so mm. an example is like vertigo. I didn't choose to feel that. That's in my biology. When you yeah. see someone that you're attracted to, your biology says procreate. Then you get horny, you know. I used to think that I thought that. So there's all this programming that happens to you. And if you're not aware of it, then it's subconscious. So yeah. your biology has programming that's do, telling you to do all these things. And 20-year-old Duncan had zero awareness of what biological programming there was. Therefore, mm. it was 100% subconscious. Therefore, when it happened, I thought it was my own original thought. But it's not. And so to me, learning about what your biological programming is allows what was subconscious to become conscious. And now I can mm. observe that, oh, look, body says procreate with that. It doesn't mean that I have a crush on that and therefore need to try to marry that. You know, it just, this is just what biology says, you know, and that's the reason humans survived. Whereas before mm. I'd be like, oh, body says procreate that. And also, do I like spending time with that person? So lust is want to procreate, don't want to spend time with them. Love is want to procreate plus want to spend time with them. And so I thought I had this original, oh my God, I like them. No, it's not. Body's just saying procreate. That's a, that's a beautiful and uh, um, highly refined mental model there. <laughs> the, 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 the key variable being, do I want to actually spend time with this person after I have procreated? <laughs> um, so, to, like, calling back to this idea of, like, so just how much of, uh, how much of us are our own thoughts and how much is it being driven um, by this more, um, you know, instinctive mind? Uh, and and so, and that's a really really I guess confronting thing to kind of like contend with because these genes that are driving us this the, the genes sole mission is for survival right and it also doesn't so much care about its own survival because all it wants you to do as a carrier is to pass on your genes yeah. to your offspring so and um, the other thing that Tim Urban like makes the distinction is that the genes aren't these you know conscious um, entities driving, um, you know, their own desires, they're, they're just what you would call a force of nature, like gravity. And so when you think about yourself and you try to, um, you know, break down everything that it is that can, uh, that make you up or that you're, that you're made of, there's this, there's this entire part of you, well, it's in every part of you, your genes, that's actually driving a lot of your decision making, and if you're not aware of that, then it's very hard for you to break free of what the um, you know the survival programming is actually doing. Mm. So to give you another example of biological programming, sex feels good. Sex feels good for a reason. So you want to do it, right? The humans that <laughs> sex felt the best for wanted to do it more. So therefore, the you know the ones that survived. If imagine if if having sex was like breaking your arm, I don't think you'd be doing it very often, right? <laughs> But it's the exact opposite. It's like, you know, having an orgasm is possibly the best feeling there is. Like it's like releasing all of the hormones, you know, at the same time. But it's also mm. wrapped in a good story, which is that you love this person and that you're going to spend your life together. Whereas chocolate might make you feel happy, but the story it's wrapped in is now you're going to get fat and a heart attack, right? <laughs> um, so <laughs> seriously, like sex feels good for a reason because yeah. it means we want to make more humans. 
And the humans yeah. that sex felt the best for made the most amount of humans. Therefore, they won. So this mm. is why, you know, this is biological programming. I'll give you one more example. Foods taste good, but not all equal. Which foods taste the best? The foods with the highest calorie content. For so long, one of the key reasons that humans died was starvation. So basically, you wanted to eat the foods with the highest calorie. So like, I don't know, a potato tastes better than a celery. A celery has effectively no calories almost, right? And so, oh, you know, chocolate, more calories. So your body is wired to survive. Like the foods which are the highest calories. Therefore, spend time getting them. So this is just another thing which is all part of our survival wiring, biological wiring programming, which if you're not aware of, again, you subconsciously, uh, you know, made or making decisions that you don't see where they're coming from. Mm. So, um, you know, really loving your uh, your analogies here, Duncan. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why, but when you compared sex to breaking your arm, I, I immediately went to, what if breaking your arm was like having sex? And like, <laughs> well, do you know, like if it didn't feel good, imagine if it felt bad. I just, I would just pick something like bad. Like, or I don't know. Instead, like it was like pulling out hairs. You know, that doesn't feel good. Um, mm. You know, but so if, yeah. if sex is like sex feels good, you're like, yeah, I want to do stuff that feels good. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, this is like you're just wired this way. It's like, oh, yeah, yeah. So, so what we, um, so. What we have here is basically life on Earth being a long succession of like you know temporary animal containers passing genes along to newer containers. Um, so it's worked pretty well as a survival mechanism, um, but it's been very stressful <laughs> to actually go through this process. So this is where um, Tim Urban starts to, I guess, draw out what has what happened next, and that was the emergence of the higher mind. And so, um, and this is again what he does so brilliantly, and what I really appreciate is that um, just just to quickly recap, the the lower mind or the, the the instinctive mind had these levers that it could pull: hunger, thirst, exhaustion, horniness, fear, mm. pain, aggression. So it was just basically based on the environmental condition and the status of the carrier of the gene's body at that particular time, it would trigger one of those levers. So if it was hungry, it would trigger hunger, you would go look for food. If it saw a viable mate, or in Duncan's words, the love of his life, it would trigger horniness. <laughs> All of these things were very much instinctual. But then what happened next was the rise of the, um, the hominid uh, species, uh, and in one in particular, the Homo sapiens, where the higher mind would develop and we had an additional set of, um, uh, I guess, enhancements. And they were reason, empathy, and imagination. Mm. Um, I'm just going to say one more time about this instinctualness, which is you sort of use this. So again, for a very long time, I did not think that there was any in, you know, biological wiring to me. I thought I made all decisions and I was the originator of them. Um, and so an example of this is you might have a house cat. It's never been outside. It's never had any training, but it sees a mouse and it knows what to do. It's like kill the mouse. Do you know what I mean? So this is taught, it knows it's, it's inside of its biological programming. Humans have similar stuff. So if you are unaware, like this is a biochemical operating system with a whole lot of, you know, programs that it's birthed with. Now we can add new ones through learning, but it already comes with heaps of them installed. I thought there was zero installed. And so I think it's got a lot of bugs. I don't know, it needs to go to the toilet, it gets sick, it gets moody. 
Um, but the biggest bug of all, I think, is that you don't know that it has bugs. I, mm. I kind of thought it was perfect. <laughs> you know, the Statue of David is what I was, you know. Um, <laughs> but this is sort of another one. You know, a spider is born, right? It doesn't go to spider web school and then it slowly, its first spider web is a joke. It doesn't do anything. Like, as far as right, I can right. see, the first spider web that it does is the same as the one it does on its last day and is the same as the ones that can find in fossils from 10,000 years ago. So a spider's born. It's not going to, like, school to learn how to make spider webs. It just knows how to do it. It immediately does it, and it's exactly the same as the first one it does as the last one it does. So this is inbuilt biological instinctual programming. Now, humans have as much of this as anything else, perhaps more because our brains are bigger. So if you don't understand what biological programming there is, then you are going to be working for it at certain times and not knowing this. So to me, it's crucial that you learn about what biological programming has been done to you so that you can then start to counteract it. The more aware you are of something, the more you can start to see, okay, well, I don't have to go and procreate with that, even though my body says go and procreate with that. And I don't have to like eat chocolate indefinitely or whatever else it is, right? So, yeah, So Duncan's personal life journey aside, in terms of not having to procreate with everything and eat chocolate whenever he feels like it. Um, the important distinction there, though, is understanding what is the difference between my biological programming and what is what I consider to be my rational um, thinking mind. Mm-hmm. And, and so this is where we kind of um, draw the distinction between the lower and the higher mind, or in Tim Urban's words, the, the battle between fire and light. And so the light is the, the ability for humans, which is what um, I guess he describes the, the, the distinguishing factors, uh, the ability to apply reason, to have empathy towards others, but also um, you know, to have imagination as well. And so when I heard these three things, like they all sound pretty significant, but I thought to myself, like, which one of those three would you think would be the most significant? Which one of which three, sorry, James? So, reason. Yeah, empathy and imagination. Empathy and imagination. Like, of the three, which one do you reckon would be the most significant? Um, well, this is something that's really interesting. <laughs> um, one of the things that they say with artificial intelligence, like, to me, it's not a question of if, but when. And so, it will have reason, right? Yep. But it may not have empathy in the way that we define empathy. And part of empathy is us, like, you know, if, if I cut myself, it bleeds, it hurts. Therefore, I don't want to cut other people because it causes pain for them. But a, mm. a machine may not have that empathy or whatever else it is. Um, imagination, to me, is interesting because there's, like, reason which is just, you know, basically looking at patterns, which is kind of what machine learning is at the moment. But then there's creating the new things. Um, mm. so yeah. for me, I mean, they're all kind of the same. They all intertwine. Um, so I don't know. I would say imagination is probably the most important, but you know, I, I think it's, it's a moot point to me. I don't really think that they're separate. Well, well, Duncan, I would agree. I think imagination is the most powerful because mm. this is really about the, the ability to create things that don't exist, mm. right? It's about fantasizing and dreaming of places where you haven't even been before. Like, mm. I don't know about you, but I haven't been to, let's say, you know, Morocco or Egypt, but I can definitely picture in my mind what it would like to be there based on stories I've heard and places I've been. And so this brings us to the next point is that it becomes super powerful when combined with the ability or the, 
or communication because that's what you bring together in order to create stories. Mm. And the stories is what I think we're going to get into next, but just quickly, like, so stories um, to me are the foundation of our entire belief system. Everything um, we believe, I think, is based on a story, whether it comes Everything from is family. A story. <laughs> yeah, well, whether it's from your family, whether it's from culture, even from science, yeah. right? Like, this is just a way of thinking. So, everything we believe would then govern how we interact with the world, whether it's how we build communities or societies or even countries. Mm. So, I think, like, yes, reasoned. Like, you know, that, logical, <laughs> that ability to apply logical thinking, empathy is to really be able to connect with other um, human beings on, a, um, on an emotional level. But I think imagination is, an, is, is, a, is a power exponentially higher than um, anything that we could truly appreciate. I think taking one step back, um, natural selection does not care about your feelings. So that everything mm -hmm. is the same. So the job of everything was to basically make as much of it as possible. So a tree yep. tries to make as many trees as possible and it's reined in by its environment. There's, you know, many trees until there's not enough sun, not enough water, you know, not enough dirt, etc. Animals, they want to make as many of them until the, the population reins them in. And so humans were the same. We made as many humans as the land could support. And so for a long while, I think in about, you know, two, you know, zero, around the time of when Jesus was, there was about half a billion people. Then in 1800, there was one billion. So we'd kind of doubled over two millennia. Then the Industrial Revolution happened, and we've gone from one billion in 1800 to 7.5 now. And the reason for this is that we no longer work for our environment. It used to be like, how mm. much hunting can you do? You know, how much gathering? Uh, and if there's a drought, then the population goes down. So the population was the maximum that the land could support. We made the environment work for us. So we like make a farm. You know, let's irrigation here. Okay, let's make a fridge. Okay, let's put some fertilizer and increase the, you know, productivity. So humans are the first species that have made the environment work for us rather than us working for it. And so mm. now every species kind of works for us. <laughs> um, we can choose, you know, if anything that could, you know, uh, hurt us, the possible other sapiens, we killed them off, you know, Neanderthals. So our homo sapiens, they're the only ones left. So now everything works for humanity in effect. Mm. Except for sharks. Sharks. But no, but fair point. Um, and so that that inflection point of us working for nature, being able to turn it around mm -hmm. um, to now having nature work for us. It's something I, I actually think to be very interesting because... Why, thank um, you, James. Well, what, in, what Tim Urban says in, in the vlog is that the higher mind was developed as something that runs independently of human survival software. But I thought, is it really? No, but could it, could it not be argued that it's still the survival software, but it's just simply been upgraded? So that's an additional data point that um, I would offer as evidence. Another one being that we're still geared for survival, right? Re reason, imagination, and empathy. They're not traits that are external to survival, but in fact, you could say they're central to it. They just do it by looking at the bigger picture. Mm. And then what you mentioned earlier, there's no greater example of survival than the human species. <laughs> we mm. survived the shit out of surviving, yeah. and, it's and, and it's because of our higher mind, not in spite of it. 
Yeah, um, so there, there was a time, I don't know, like when we were hunter-gatherers and lots of intertribal warfare. Um, so somewhere, you know, low single digits percentage of the population was killed every year through intertribal warfare. So like, I don't know, three or four or five in a hundred people. Now in, you know, Western, you know, sort of, or, you know, the more developed economies like Australia, I think it's well less than one in a hundred thousand people. Um, so you're a thousand times more likely to kill yourself now than you are to be killed by others. And so this has sort of changed a lot. And so when you think about it, how do humans become the most, the dominant species? How come it's not some sharks <laughs> or, or trees, right? <laughs> um, and we were basically able to bandy together um, and to talk. And so through communication, like they say, there's a wonderful documentary, dogs have 12 words. It's like scared, happy, fight, you know, whatever else it is, right? And yeah. humans have more than 12 words, uh, in fact, more and more. And so the, the stories that we've been able to create have gotten bigger and therefore the collaboration has been able to increase. But I thought mm. going back, this is one of the things, like everybody says, not everybody, you know, family's important, right? Now, some people don't say this, they didn't have families, they're not around. So this story that is pervasive everywhere, blood's thicker than water, you must be good to your family, is the story that won because that's where the most humans came from. If humans didn't value family, they didn't have many pe you know, children, they don't mm. exist anymore. So you think this story is something you, you know, have valued. No, it's the way that the humans that won, i.e. the most populous of them, valued you know, family the strongest. So this is another yep. thing, like you think this is your own thought? No, this is just why those humans beat other humans. Hmm. Well, it, it was exactly right. It was a successful model for survival. Um, like to your point, so there were people, you know, way back when, that when they saw a rustle in the bush, they would jump back because of, they thought it was a tiger. Uh, and then there were others who saw a rustle in the bush and they wouldn't move. And then that one time out of 10, it was a tiger, they get eaten. And so they would not have the opportunity to pass on their gene. Yeah. Same thing here. By sharing the story that to honor your family and your family is the most important thing to you, it reinforces the notion of a strength in a smaller group, which back then, when you go all the way from tribal time to even, you know, within the last millennia or two, it has a greater chance for ensuring that small group survival because they banded together so closely. Um, and then you can actually see that kind of like playing itself out. The family would use itself or lend itself as a collective unit when bargaining, right? So uh, it, it even in their very early days, like marriage was a bargaining tool between families. Mm. And that bargaining tool was to ensure the succession of their, of their genes. So this is something that, like you said, like it won out because it was the most successful model for people to you know, attach themselves to mm. that then had lead on effects that would ensure the, the, the continuation of that particular uh, uh, group of genes. Yeah, so um, the goal of everything is to make as much of itself as possible. Trees want to make as much of itself. Sharks want to make as much of itself as those evil sharks. You know, bloody sharks. Yeah, bloody sharks. Humans <laughs> want to make as much of themselves. Okay, so the, the, oh, there were different humans, but the ones that made the most humans, they won. They, they were populous, right? So which stories were required to make the most humans? Mm. Well, first of all, children. You have to have children. If you don't think having children is important, you didn't make many humans. You're not around. So you're born and almost everyone's like, yeah, of course I'm going to have children. Not, it's not a question of if, it's just a question of how many. Why? Mm. Because the tribes or the groups of people that didn't think that was important aren't around anymore. So everybody thinks this. 
This isn't necessarily, for instance, what you should do, but this is what the society tells you. You think this is your own story? It's like, no, the people that won, i.e. the most populous, thought it was super duper important to have kids. So if you look back, I don't know, 1800, perhaps the best thing you could do for humanity was to have more children, so humanity didn't die out. But we've gotten so good at procreating, there's now seven and a half billion of us. And so now perhaps the best thing you can do for humanity is to not have children. <laughs> so for the first time ever in the history of humanity, the story was always the same. More children is good. More children is good. And the people that had the most children won. Now, making more children is actually endangering humanity. Now, we don't need to have zero, but this is why this story is everywhere. It doesn't matter if you go to the Middle East or you go to you know, wherever, an African tribe or whatever, Having children is the most important thing, and you need to do that always. Anyone who didn't think that was important isn't around. So this isn't necessarily, you know, your your value. It's just what was required to get humans to be successful. Hmm. So I, I have a slightly different view on that, but I think it all plays into the same kind of narrative. So uh, a story that we tell ourselves, Duncan. Um, so there's a difference between a story that's driven by your genes and a story that's driven by after the collective or our culture, so to speak, in terms of what we convince ourselves is key to our survival. So stories from our genes is exactly that, survive. You survive by passing on your genes. So that's kind of like why we have a little instinctive trigger in our brain that says horny, because when we see some, you know, some attractive member of the opposite sex, we get that um, instinctive nature that we want to re uh, procreate. Um, so when you were talking earlier about, you know, one of the stories we have is that we want to have children. I would argue that that is more heavily based on the the natural instinct to procreate rather than the stories we tell ourselves as opposed to valuing your family is a much more um, embedded story than a natural um, instinct as part of your gene. But the, I point that I wanted to, the point I wanted to make is that there's a difference between the, the physiological evolution of our minds and the societal evolution that we have witnessed ourselves transition to in the last, you know, 200 years. Our minds are pretty much wired exactly the same way they were <coughs> 40,000 years ago. We have pretty much exactly the same physical cues and instinctive levers in our brains today as we did back then when people were roving um, in tribes. However, we live in a very different world today. So the, what you were pointing out, Duncan, is that all of these instinctive cues that were six, that determined a successful surviving human species uh, 40,000 years ago might not necessarily ha play the same role that they would in society today. So mm. case in point, we, you know, we needed to eat anything we could get our hands on. 40,000 years ago, because food was scarce. It was not guaranteed that you would have three square meals a day. As opposed to in today's world, we have the same biological programming, but we live in a world of abundant food. So that's why we have, you know, a, you know things like sugar that is highly, um, you know, uh, 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 you know attractive to us because our very old brain is still telling us that you should eat that because that's really good energy for us to store and ensure our survival. Mm. But it can't catch up to the world that we live in today, which is very different. Hmm. So one of the things, there's biological programming, such as the foods that taste the best have the highest calories because they're the ones that's made us survive. Sex feels yeah. good because therefore you want to have it, therefore you made more humans. But there's also social like programming or sociocultural programming. Mm. 
the stories that won were the stories that led to the most humans. So for instance, if you value having children, then you go, what's most people's like life goal to give a better life to their children. And if this story was strong, you had children and you gave a better life to them, then they survived more. If your story was, I can't be bothered looking after my kids, who cares what happens to them? (laughs) that, That didn't mean that they did well, right? So again, everything was kind of basically trying to make as much of itself as possible. There's biological programming and there's socio-cultural programming. The, one, the humans that won are the most populous, the, the maximum number. And the stories that won lived or supported the maximum number. So, therefore, you need to have children. This is Go to whichever culture that is around. That's like priority one, having children. Priority two, giving them a better life than what you had. Why? So that they're going to then live. If you didn't care about giving them a better life, then they died out. So I would argue that most people think of these as, yes, this is a value. I'm like, you didn't choose this. Just like you didn't choose to get vertigo when you walk near a cliff. You didn't choose that the most important thing in your life was to have children and to try to give them a better life. Is that the best thing that was you know, to be done to make more humans 200 years ago? Yes. Again, at that point, humanity wasn't sort of totally dominating the world and we had so many humans that we were breaking it through climate change. So this story is the story that won to make the most humans. I believe that, you know, we're possibly going to live forever. And if so, this story, which is what was good for humanity in the past, I think is counterproductive. So again, mm. the, the story that was most important for humanity, make as many humans and give them a better life than the previous generation, right? Mm. Now, if we do that, we're going to run out of resources, we're going to have too much climate change, we're going to have all these problems. So the story today is actually inherited from the past, is broken. Like I no longer mm. think it fits the problem. But people don't realize this. Of course I'm having more kids. And this is literally, like, you didn't think that. You've just been socio-culturally indoctrinated because anyone that didn't think that, they got bred out. They don't exist anymore. Hmm. Well, it's exactly right. And, like, if, you know, God willing, should we uh, get the chance to talk about the future series of this podcast, there's a whole lot more that we can learn about how we also have this amazing tool that when... My tool's amazing. Set up, Sorry. <laughs> when set up properly, it actually had this ability to self-correct. Um, and I think what's an important um, idea for us to talk about before we go into that um, level in, uh, in future discussion is the idea of emergence, because I think the idea of emergence kind of brings home to what it is that these higher minds have made possible for us. So, like... I guess the central um, thesis here is that we're living in a world that our biological or instinctive minds are no longer the driving force to ensure our survival. You know, it kept us alive back in the day when we were enslaved to nature. And so it played a significant role back then. But now we've flipped the switch and we're the masters of nature. And so our biological or our instinctive minds are no longer a reliable tool to ensure our survival but if we're not aware of that fact we're still going to be driven by that and then that's going to lead to you know potential i guess um you know outcomes that would not actually be in our um, best interest and so that's why the higher mind is actually really important now to turn over to the higher mind is in what i view as the way forward to ensure the best chance for survival in the new world where we live in um, you know, a society where nature no longer has the same rules that it once applied. 
But the problem with that is that for a very long time, we've been living in a world where we can access these um, these characteristics of the higher mind, which are again, empathy, reason, and imagination. But we've been accessing them in a way that we've been still driven by our biological mind. So this is why, like I guess, kind of what you're saying, Duncan, is that while we have the ability to use our imagination to create stories, we're still subconsciously driven by our instinctive mind to unconsciously tie ourselves to these stories without being aware of it. We don't know that we're actually, you know, buying into what we're being told from a very earlier age to suggest that this is the way in which we operate to ensure our survival. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. Um, so I think it's a sort of similar point. There's biological programming, and if you don't know what it is, then you it's subconscious. It's directing you to do things which you didn't necessarily know. And then there's mm. societal programming, and if you're not conscious of it, it's directing you to do things. So the more you become aware of things, you can now see, okay, I see what this is saying to do. Should I actively choose to do it? So the most important stories, which we're sort of talking about. So for instance, having children and giving them a better life is a universal story across all, you know, that I'm aware of cultures. Why? All surviving cultures. Because, yeah, exactly. All surviving cultures. Yeah. Then this is not that someone, oh, this is important. Like, you know, you've chosen this. It was a biological imperative for the survival of the human race. And you think you spent all your life doing this. It's like, well, actually, is that what I should spend my life doing? Maybe. Another one is like family is super important. So let's think about this. If, if there is a woman and no help, it's just, you know, a man that she happened to mate with once and then that person ran off um, and all this, you know, is that better than two people? Well, two people is better than one person, right? So if you look again, it doesn't matter like South America, Asia, wherever, there is this family unit. They might be whatever, Middle East, and they've got a different religion and you know all these things. It's still family and it's still two people because that was the optimal solution towards raising you know children and having them be successful to go on. And if family wasn't important, you then just bug it off. It's like, nah, I can't be bothered with this. <laughs> you know, you're on your own. So the optimal solution to raising children was two people. And if family was important, you stuck around and you helped. And the story about who she is. So this is another one. It's like family is super important. Everyone says that. And if you're a good person, and why? Because the people that believed that made the most children. They mm. made more people. And so therefore it gets perpetuated. So this is again, yeah. not a story that you chose. It's in every society. It is a story that was one versus I don't care about family versus I'm just going to run around and have sex and then run off as fast as possible. <laughs> you know, those people... <laughs> didn't make many you know, successful humans that lived up and, and yeah. moved on. And so yeah. one thing I'd want to say again really quickly, I, you know, if you look at the trends, humans live longer every year, right? And so at some point, the amount of extra time we live in a year will be more than one year. So for instance, you live one point, your expected death is 1.1 years further away in one year. So you never catch up. So therefore, you never die. Okay, if you never die, survival of the human race is not dependent upon having children. Whereas before it was, the strongest stories supported the most children. Have children, give them a better life, family is important. Those are all stories that break if humans don't die. So most people put their whole life around this. The reason I do well at school is so I can get a good job. The reason I get a good job is so I can get a good mate. The reason I have a good mate is because they're healthy and we're going to have kids. And then I work hard to give them a better life. That's most people's story 
and that was to make ensure humanity. Now, if we don't die, those core stories, i.e. those values, break. And you didn't choose them. Just every the, the societies that didn't value those things don't exist anymore. So you're indoctrinated everywhere, from TV, from songs, from everything, that this is super important. Mm. Mm. So going back to the, the idea about um, you know the single woman having a child and how that actually translates into why family is so important, I think it's really helpful to try and like tease out what what do we see like happening there that led to us um, you know adopting this particular story. So like by way of comparison, when um, you know for certain animal species, and I can't um, think of like most of them specifically, but I think I go with the sharks. Point. Well, sharks. Come on. <laughs> sharks. Come sharks are the best species. <laughs> but like with elephants and um, well, horses no, no, no. specifically. Sharks. And sharks. Yeah, yeah, cool. Um, so once the, once a baby elephant or a baby horse um, is born, it's able to get up straight away and walk around. It's able to go over to the, the, the nearby um, uh, creek and drink water itself. So child rearing for these animals is not that difficult. And as a result, there's not so much as this family unit as, a, as opposed to a herd, which is kind of like a group of families. Um, now, don't get me wrong, there's still like this mother-child mm. relationship, mm. but that idea of a family doesn't hold so strongly. Mm. Contrast that with the human experience. When a mother has a child, she is now insanely vulnerable. Because this <laughs> child is also completely unable to fend for herself. When we are born, we are born, to Duncan's word, useless. Um, <laughs> I don't know about I you, mean, but I couldn't do shit. <laughs> the only thing I could do was shit. That's, that's pretty much it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so to take Duncan's very apt description, um, but like, you know, some people say that we're born nine months premature. Um, because we've got such big heads and we're bipedal um, animals and with smaller hips, we have to be born before we're ready to be born mm. in order for us to fit through the birth canal. And so for such a long time, the women, are, uh, they have to spend, or the mothers, uh, um, or the caregiver, like, let's be very you know diverse and inclusive here, <laughs> have to spend the majority of their time caring for him. that. Oh, block. Sorry, go <laughs> Have to spend the majority of their time yeah. caring for that completely helpless child. Yeah. But by doing that, they are then helpless because they can't get food for themselves anymore. Yeah. So that was why the idea of the partner supporting the mother mm. um, is central to ensuring the survival because now suddenly the partner has to get food for three people. Mm -hmm. And so this kind of um, cycle blend in. And so thinking about the partner now needing to get more people, well, they now need more help, so it makes sense that the, the parents of the parents stick around so that they can help each other out. This is what I see as leading into the narrative of the family unit, because yep. it all starts with the incredibly taxing um, exercise of raising an incredibly helpless human baby. Um, and so that, what, that way, by ensuring you have this family unit around you, you strengthen the mother-child relationship, you increase the ability for the, um, the hunter-gatherer to go out and get the food, uh, therefore you increase the likelihood of ensuring survival. And so that would then self-perpetuate uh, perpetuate out into, well, okay, we figured this out. If we keep together as a family, then we increase our likelihood of surviving. Um, and so just one last point I kind of wanted to make to your point about if we live forever, then this kind of like goes away. 
well, Duncan, what about when the asteroid comes around and snuffs out Earth? Like, what are we going to do then? Well, we need to expand into interplanetary species. Now, what happens when the next James, come on, dude. Sucks in our entire um, solar system. Well, we need to be inter-solar system species. Like, if we don't die, great. But then I think we're going to have to expand into new territories. So procreation will always play a role because we're going to have to take over this universe one way or another. Um, look, I think it's a really interesting point that the human family bond or unit is the optimal way for raising children. Mm. So they come out and they need a huge amount of care before they can start to look after themselves mm. um, versus an elephant, which can kind of look after itself a lot more. But then if you're looking at like, I don't know, a frog, it, it doesn't have a family unit. It just makes lots and lots of tadpoles. And it's kind of like, let's hope that a few of these, you know, <laughs> get through. So the story of family being important fit the type of problem that we have. Humans are born very premature, as you say, you know, and as such can't walk and do all these things yet. So they require a huge amount of care. Mm. As such, a family unit is more optimal than just, hey, I'm going to have, you know, have thousands of tadpole eggs and let them fend for themselves. And so this is really important. The story came from our circumstances. This value yeah. is not something you chose. This value is an outcome of the most successful you know, humans that procreated the most. So you, mm. when you realize this, oh my God, I've got this biological programming and I, I, it tells me to do things that I didn't realize. Oh my God, my most important value set, get married, have children, live a better life for them, is specifically based on the fact that we want humanity to live longer. You didn't choose this, you know, but you think you did. This is crucial to understanding. And again, if we do live forever, things can sort of shift. Yeah, well, exactly right. Because Duncan, you're going to need to start thinking about your holiday house on, uh, you know, on Neptune, uh, for that to have any kind of viability. Because you know, forever is a very long time. Um, I think uh, the, the the identification of what is a biological program that we are running ourselves on without being aware of it is the key distinction. The second one is what are the cultural stories, what are the appropriated narratives that we've adopted without being aware of them? Like, what are our core beliefs and are they actually ours or have they actually been, um, I guess, you know, fed to us from a very early age? And is that based on our circumstances, like where you were born or what kind of family you were born into? Um, is, is, to me, one of the really key, um, you know, things that I took out of this particular article. Yeah. Um, so, James, do you have to go in, f in five minutes or? Yes, I, I do have uh, a hard Let's, let's do a um, sort of summary then. So the, the key point to me here is that there's lots of programming done to you that you didn't actively choose. And 20-year-old Duncan had zero awareness of this. So I had no awareness that, you know, going near a cliff, vertigo, well, that's programming. Okay. Well, you know, baby is born, knows how to feed immediately. This happens everywhere. And so an example would be, you know, advertising is for healthy athletic people because those were the people that were best likely to have good offspring. So Coca-Cola is not making you like attractive people. Attractive people are the best ones to procreate with that make the healthiest humans. It's just amplifying what's built into your biology. Mm. So this is really interesting. You didn't know this. Then the stories that you think are the most valuable ones in your life, you also didn't choose. So most people take it as an absolute given that they're going to have children. The question is just how many? And that, of course, they're going to try to make a better life for their children. This is 
what caused humans to become the dominant species. And people that didn't value that aren't around. So for a lot of people, I don't think they're aware that these things they didn't choose, that there's programming done to them biologically and by the socio-cultural programming, which defines at a, to a large extent their high-level stuff. Now, you can make decisions on top of this, and I sort of, you know, don't think I want to have children. And an example of that was sort of me slowly waking up. But if you'd asked me 10 years ago, 100% I was going to have kids. And then I slowly was like, hold on. Did I choose this? Wait a second. You know, <laughs> this has been told to me by somebody else. Um, so I do think you get to choose a life. Um, but I didn't realize that I hadn't. I was doing what the, what is programmed to me before. Yeah. So what is life? Yeah. <laughs> Put simply, um, you could think of life as a collection of genes that are simply moving around, moving about in the world, trying to ensure its own survival. So for many, many a years, it was doing this at a um, at the animalistic level of driving our instincts. So those are things about ensuring that when we're hungry, we feel hunger. When we're horny, or when we see a mate, we feel horny. Mm. That when we're near a cliff, we feel fear. When we get hurt, we feel pain. When we feel when we get challenged, we feel aggression. And so that was a very binary and very simplistic model of ensuring our survival. Biological problem. Then, exactly. It was then what emerged from that when the human species came onto, uh, I guess, the playing field. We adopt these, uh, the, these elements of reason, empathy, and imagination. And this, I don't know if it's unintended consequences or if the, this was the, the schemings of our genes all along, but this had then led on to not only the proliferation of the human race, but a world in which we are no longer governed by the original laws of nature that the biological mind would program to ensure our survival in. The problem is that we still have that biological mind, but we no longer exist in that world. So if we're not aware of what is driving us from a biological sense, it can lead to consequences that would have traditionally, 40,000 years ago, may have ensured our survival, but that doesn't necessarily apply for today. So by being aware of what is the difference between a biological instinct and a social cultural narrative that we've simply been told to believe, will be the first step for us to try and lift ourselves out of the old ways of how we've been programmed. And I don't mean how we've been programmed by like Illuminati's and elites or anything, but <laughs> how we've been programmed by our 40,000 year old brain. But only then can we understand, you know, what are the stories that we've been told and do I actually agree with those stories or what stories do I actually want to create? myself and I think we'll go through all of this and much more mm. hopefully in the next episode because this yeah. has just been so much fun <laughs> <laughs> it has um, so yeah um, I think it's been wonderful uh, maybe I'll just add one final thing again this is like you need to see what programming is done to you by society and by your biology and when you can then you can start to decide whether you go with it or not um, and again 20 year old Duncan had zero understanding of each of these things um, now, I'm not saying it's necessarily right or wrong, but I was just awareness zero. Um, so if you get some awareness, it's cool. All right. Well, see you next time, hey? Thanks. See you soon, Duncan. Bye.